given that the sinful nature remains within believers throughout their lives, it's not surprising that believers wander away from the Lord. As the hymn writer wrote, quote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The good news is that when believers return to the Lord, he restores them. The problem is that believers need restoration over and over and over and over again. In that regard, there are a couple of things believers need to know. They're expressed by the psalmist in Psalm 85. Would you join me in the 85th Psalm as we see what he says that we can learn? It's talking about restoration, obviously, but it's impossible to pinpoint the particular restoration that Israel is describing. It could not be the restoration after the Babylonian captivity, since this psalm was the sons by the sons of Korah, and they lived long before that time. But the identification of the event is not important. What really matters is that God had done it, and if he did it once, he can certainly do it again. So with that in mind, let's look at the opening verses of the psalm. Interestingly, the first thing he does is he reviews past restorations. Look at verse 1. He says, uh, Lord... You have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. So clearly he's pointing to something that was done in the past. He begins by telling the Lord that in the past he's been faithful faithful to his land. And as we will see in a minute in verse 2, he's also been faithful to his people. Bringing back the captivities of Jacob is probably a reference to God bringing back Israel uh, from some captivity, and some suggest maybe the Babylonian captivity. But as I mentioned a minute ago, we're not certain of which captivity it is. The writer begins by thanking God for delivering his people. He viewed Israel's former enslavement to be the result of her sin and thanked God for pardoning it. That's what's going on in the first verse. You have been favorable to your land. You brought people back to the land. So that obviously involves forgiveness. Uh, Verse 2 makes that very clear. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sins. Now notice, as I mentioned a minute ago, Verse 1 talks about restoration to the land, returning to it, same thing. And verse 2 talks about the restoration of the people in terms of forgiveness. The Hebrew word translated forgive means to take away. In this verse, the figure is used to communicate that it is the Lord who covered their sins. Matter of fact, the Hebrew word covered means to conceal or to hide. So notice the parallel. You have 
forgiven the iniquity of your people, you have covered. That's a parallelism. And so the second uh, amplifies the first. They're talking about the same thing. I mean, obviously, you have forgiven their iniquity. You have covered their sin. So forgiving and covering are uh, similar ideas put in parallel statements. So when the Lord forgives, he takes away, meaning of the word forgive, and then he hides, meaning of the word uh, covered, our sins. What a beautiful way to say it. Uh, the point is, he doesn't see them anymore. If he takes them away and hides them, then he doesn't see them. Obviously, God sees everything. It's a figure of speech, but what a poetic way to put it. Um, there's another figure of speech for forgiveness in the Old Testament that recently really impressed me. I'd seen it before, but uh, this time it somehow just really uh, indelibly impressed it on my mind. I think I'll never forget it. It's in Isaiah 38, verse 17, where God put our sins behind his back that he doesn't see them anymore. Now that is identical to this statement, only it's using a different image and one I think that's even more vivid. This one doesn't tell us where he hid them. Uh, Isaiah 38 says, he took our sin and he put them behind his back. And the point of that is, and he doesn't see them anymore. The point is, he doesn't consider them in, our, in his dealings with us. They're forgiven. So, he goes on to say in verse 3, You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Ooh, how did that get in here? Uh, you've forgiven, you've covered, and you quit being angry. What happened? Well, apparently because of their deliberate disobedience and determined defiance, the Lord was angry and he poured out his wrath on them by sending them into captivity. Now they are forgiven. He has taken away their sin and his anger. So these opening verses constitute basically a thanksgiving to God for no longer being angry, for forgiving Israel of her sin and restoring her to the land of Palestine. As one author said, the revival is described as a time when the Lord was favorable to the land and when he restored the fortunes of Jacob. There are three actions that led up to this. First, there was the confession of sin. That is not explicitly stated here, but confession is an inevitable necessity before others uh, can be forgiven. So that is assumed. The second thing is they were forgiven of their iniquities. And the third is uh, God was no longer angry. So the opening couple of verses are simply a review of past restor uh, restoration, that they confessed, God forgave them, and God stopped being angry in the past. The second part of this passage 
is a request for present restoration. Now, let me pause here for a minute and make an observation. Just uh, This has to do with the way you study the Bible. Look at verse 1. Lord, you have been favorable. Past tense. You have brought back the iniquity of Jacob. You have forgiven. You have covered. You have taken away your wrath. You see all that? Past tense, past tense, past tense. Now look at verse 4. Restore us. Present tense. So that's the way I'm analyzing the psalm. That clearly he talked about the past and now unmistakably he's talking about the present. Restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger toward us to cease. Well, now he just said the anger was ceased in verse 3, but that was in the past. That's important to see. So now, understanding what happened in the past, God was angry because of our deliberate defiance and disobedience. Then he, we've, we've, we've sinned again, and so he must be angry again. Good kind of um, observation. Even after God had restored Israel, they sinned again, and they needed restoration again. Thus the psalmist requests restoration from the God of our salvation. Now you've heard me say, salvation means deliverance. So it's the God of our deliverance. And he's asking for the cessation of his anger toward them. One author says, apparently the past restoration referred to in verses 1 through 3 inspired this prayer for another restoration. Interesting. There's at least two restorations going on here, right? Remember in the introduction I said, we all wander away from the Lord and we need restored, but we need to restore it. We need to be restored over and over and over. Well, this is the case where that is the point. So the former demonstration of God's forgiveness is based on the plea that he repeated. Faith is not satisfied with history, as one has said. It wants to see God in current events. <laughs> you did it in the past, but that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in you doing it now. Verse 5. Will you be angry for us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? So he's still dealing with God's anger. He's, by asking two questions in this verse, the psalmist inquires of the, uh, of the Lord how long his anger toward Israel will last. And the point is, is it permanent? Any time spent away from the Lord can seem like an eternity of misery. But the plea of verse 5 takes on special meaning in the lips of the nation of Israel when its centuries of persecution have been experienced and they were dispersed for all those years. At any rate, he's saying restore us in verses 4 and 5 and he specifically means from being angry against us. Now look at verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Now, I can't help but point out that verse 4 says, restore us, and verse 5 says, revive us. 
Verse 4 deals with restore us because you're angry with us. Verse 5 says revive us so we can have joy again. So we're going from restore to revive. We're going from anger to joy. The psalmist asked the Lord if he would not revive them again so that they can rejoice in him. Someone has said, Spiritual disobedience results inevitably in a loss of joy. Broken fellowship means that the believer's song is gone. Rejoicing cannot coexist with unconfessed sin. So here the prayer goes winging its way up to heaven. The Spirit's renewal set of joy bells ringing once again. Every great revival has been accompanied by song so revive us we want to sing which is an indication of joy now he continues to request he's requesting present restoration that's clear because of verse 4 restore us that started this paragraph or this section restore us revive us now look at verse 7 show us your mercy Lord, and grant us your salvation. The psalmist asks for mercy, not justice, so that they might be delivered, which is the point of the word salvation. Interesting. He didn't ask for justice because if they got justice, it wouldn't be restored. What restores us is mercy, not justice. So when God restores his people, it is a gracious demonstration of his mercy but no more than any other dealings with us. It is love that chastens us, that disciplines us, that corrects us, that brings us back at last. And how steadfast is that love that bears with us in all of our wanderings, our backslidings, and our disobedience. There is no love like the love of the Lord. And the revival is granted of the salvation from the Lord. Not the salvation of our soul, but deliverance from all the consequences of unfaithfulness. We be delivered from captivity, from powerlessness, from unhappiness. But he's saying, Lord, we need this now. We've sinned. You're angry. We understand that from the past. Now, restore us now. So the sum of the second section, verses 4 to 7, is a request that God not be angry, verses 4 and 5, but be merciful to restore them, to revive them, so that there can be joy. Very simple, very clear. Now there's a third section that begins in verse 8. I want you to look carefully. I will hear. What jumps off the page at you when you read those first three words? I will hear. Now, in the context, it's so unmistakable that in the opening verses, he talked about the past. Then he shifted to the present, And now he's clearly going to the future. 
This is one of those passages where uh, it's past, present, and future. That's the outline of the psalm. In this case, he's going to reflect on the future restoration. He prayed for it. Now he's assuming he's going to get it, and he's going to reflect on what that means in the future. In the first place, there's going to be peace. He said, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, and let them not turn back to folly. Now, as you've probably heard me say before in other messages, God puts a premium on peace. Uh, you know, you talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, what's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. It's one of the top three. And in this passage, he's talking about joy, and now he's talking about peace. Restore us so we will in the future have joy, and restore us so in the future we'll know about peace. So having prayed for restoration, the psalmist says he's confident that the Lord will speak peace to his people and prevent them from returning to folly again. He says he would listen to a word from the Lord who promises peace, shalom which actually means more than just uh, the cessation of war. One scholar translates it welfare because it includes the whole being and a number of blessings besides peace. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word means fullness of divine blessing, according to some. So he's praying for peace and that includes peace, but perhaps it includes much more. Look at verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. If verse 8 is talking about peace, verse 9 is talking about glory. So the psalmist describes his future spiritual restoration in detail. He says God's deliverance is near to those who fear that glory may dwell in the land of Israel. The idea behind glory dwelling in the land is that God would again manifest his presence there by his blessing. So we're going to see your, we're going to see your glory. Glory is connected with the presence of God. Uh, God's person. Matter of fact, one author says, glory here is used to signify the God of glory. And the thought is that the Lord can be depended on to dwell in the midst of his people when they are in fellowship with him. Or another says, glory means the manifestation of his presence. These ideas expressed in God's revelation to Israel find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. The promise of peace and salvation through the glory of the one who dwells among men may have been in John's mind when he wrote John 1, 14. So we're not only going to have peace, we're going to have the manifestation of God's presence in terms of his blessing on his people. Ah, but there's more. 
Look at verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Is that a vivid illustration or what? What I want you to notice are four attributes. Mercy, truth, righteousness, peace. Restoration consists of peace, verse 8, glory, verse 9, truth, mercy, righteousness, and peace. When I'm restored, that's what I'm going to be restored to, the psalmist is saying. In human affairs, strict adherence to the claims of truth usually prevents the display of love and mercy. But God can show his steadfast love on his people because all the claims of truth are fully met with Jesus Christ on the cross. In the same sense, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Believers enjoy peace with God because of all the claims of the divine justice were met, as one author says, by the substitutionary work of the Savior. So, we often think of uh, justice and love as being opposite. But righteousness, justice, and mercy are bound together. Righteousness and peace embrace each other. They hug each other. They kiss each other. They go together. And this is ultimately manifest in the cross where the love of God sent his son and the death of his son satisfied the justice of God. But what I want you to walk away with from verse 10 is that we're being restored to mercy and truth, to righteousness and peace. He says in verse 11, Truth shall spring forth out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. In the Notice again, shall. It's future. We're still in the future. Uh, in the future restoration, truth will spring out of the earth. Righteousness will rain down from heaven. Truth and peace are what the objects of his blessing are about. They unite when God's people return to him and he responds in blessing. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall rain down from the sky. There's more. Verse 12. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and the land will yield its increase. So notice again, we're still in the future tense. Did you see that? The Lord will give our land will yield. So in the future restoration, the Lord will give his people what is good and their land will abundantly produce. That's sort of the idea. Productive harvest to an agricultural people was a blessing. Well, in the Mosaic Covenant, in Deuteronomy 28... And in Deuteronomy 30, 
God promised that if his people walked in obedience, they would have an abundant harvest. That's just the blessing that God gave Israel. I think for us, the land is not the issue, but these virtues mentioned are. So as the believer is true to the eternal lover, one has said, the heavens respond righteously with multiplied blessings. The Lord, ever faithful to his word, gives us what is good. He withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. Drought and famine conditions cease, and the Lord produces a bumper crop. So, he gives us what is good. Our land will yield its increase. One more verse. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. I hate to say this again, but it's critical to understanding the psalm. Did you notice the future tense? Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. God's future restoration will include glory. That's the presence of God. Mercy, truth, righteousness, peace, and that which is good. Now what I'm doing is collecting all the things that have been said so far. All of these things will ultimately be perfectly fulfilled in the millennium, but we can partake of them to some degree now. As the Lord visits his land, his routes take him among his people whose righteous lives are morally prepared for his presence. So the writer was confident that the Lord would cause his attributes of love and faithfulness and righteousness to work together to promote peace, their welfare, righteousness, and prosperity. Wow! All of these things are linked and listed together. We're at the end of the psalm. Another short one, relatively speaking. The point is of this one is when you need restoration again, what should you do? Well, let me make a suggestion that this psalm gives us. And it's different. You need restoration? Review God's past restoration. Request restoration again in the present. And reflect on the kind of restoration God gives. Namely, truth, righteousness, mercy, and peace. I can't tell you how critical I think this passage is. This psalm is full of very important terms. Righteousness, peace, truth, fear, glory, salvation, just to name a few. And that's what you have to look forward to. So when we stray from the truth, righteousness, mercy, and peace, God will restore us because he's a God of mercy and will preserve us 
that we may rejoice in him. Ultimately, we wander away from the Lord and his benefits, and thus we need to be repeatedly restored. Now, before I close, I want to camp here for just a minute. Why would you say, review the past? Does that strike you as odd? I mean, I understand the present request for Lord restore us. But why would you start with reviewing the past? And why would you go in to reflect upon the future? Well, let me suggest that this is more significant than you might think. And let me tell you why. I think you need to focus on the past because there are some people that have a hard time thinking that God can forgive them. I've dealt with those kind of people. They think their sin is so much worse that God could never forgive them, restore them, use them. Wow. So maybe in those kind of situations where the sin is so bad that you should maybe reflect on the fact, well, yeah, but God did this in the past. Uh, let me illustrate. Uh, David sinned. You know the story. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. <laughs> That's bad. But let me tell you what's worse. He then covered it up by committing murder. And so in Psalm 51, he says, my sin is ever before me. He constantly thought about it. But he didn't confess it for nine months or better. So the prophet came along, stuck his finger in his face and said, thou art the man. Well, could God restore such a person? Could God once again use such a person? Well, you need to read his confession, Psalm 51. You know what he says? Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. That's the essence of the psalm. He gets down to the end and he says, and then... I will sing your praises and sinners will be restored to you. I will teach your word. Wow. There's a fella who sinned adultery and murder. And the murder was to cover up the adultery. And yet he was confident that God would forgive him and God would use him. Wow. I mean, think about that. He clearly, clearly teaches that um, God will use him again. Matter of fact, let me read you uh, from Psalm 51. Verse 14 says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. He's confessing murder. My tongue shall sing aloud your righteousness. What? I just committed murder, but when you forgive me, I'll sing. 
Now back up. He says, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, verse 12. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So he's not only going to be restored, he's going to be restored to joy and he's going to be restored to teaching sinners. He's going to be restored to service. So I think the idea of Psalm 85, where you look back at how God has restored others, could be of great comfort to you, especially if you feel that you're beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. So obviously, you should ask for the forgiveness and restoration in the present. That's simple and clear. It doesn't need any explanation. But what about the fact that it's future? Why does he camp on the future? I think that it may be important that we really think about that because that just may be one of the most important parts of this passage. Let me put it like this. If you've wandered away from the Lord and you're coming back to him, what is it you think you're coming back to? You know, I think in a lot of churches it means, well, I quit going to church and I quit reading my Bible, so I'm going to come back to the Lord and I'm going to start reading my Bible and going to church. And if you really want to get dedicated, it means you're going to pray, tithe, and witness. <laughs> now, all that may have its place. Don't misunderstand me. But notice what this psalm says. This psalm puts the focus on, in the future, you're going to restore me to church attendance, attending the feasts and festivals of the Old Testament, going to Jerusalem three times a year. No. 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 God wants to restore you to truth, righteousness, mercy, and peace. So when you need restoring, maybe you need to give some reflection to what you're restoring to. One of the things that strikes me about this list is how often I pointed out that there are two great concepts in the Bible. On one end is truth and justice, and righteousness. And on the other end is grace, and mercy, and compassion, love. And here again, the scripture has the two extremes kiss each other. They embrace each other. They go together. The two become one. And that's what God wants to restore us to. Righteousness and truth on one hand, love and grace on the other, and that we be combined to them and them us, so that that's what we're like. One other observation. I started out saying that we need restoring over and over and over and over again. Now, 
I got that from the psalm because he talks about uh, you restored in the past and now we need it in the present. So clearly they needed it more than once. But is such a thing like that in the Bible? I mean, we can point to Peter who, you know, denied the Lord three times, but that was all one night. Any other indications that he did that later? No. Any indications in the Bible that you need repeated restoration over and over again? Is there a tendency to get away from the Lord over and over and over again? And the answer is an emphatic yes. Just read the history of Israel. But let me give you one great illustration to wrap all this up. Years and years ago, I preached through the book of Ezra. And the point was restoration. They were in captivity and they were restored. I preached through the book of Nehemiah. Same thing. They were in captivity and they came back to the land to rebuild the wall. Restoration. But what struck me about Nehemiah is this. Nehemiah led the children of Israel back to the land. They rebuilt the wall. A revival broke out. The people were restored spiritually. And Nehemiah went back to Persia, modern-day Iran. When he returned to the land, he discovered that the people needed restoration again. Incredible. The last chapter of the book of Nehemiah, the book of restoration. Chapter 13 is about needing restoration again after they were restored. And that's the point. God does that because of his mercy. But he wants us to be restored to truth and justice and righteousness and love and mercy and grace and live like that so that we don't need to be restored over and over and over again. Father, thank you for putting this in focus. Thank you for highlighting those things that you want from us so clearly in this passage. Impress upon us again the need to have righteousness and mercy and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.